If you will, please stand with me at the reading of God's Word. I want to call your attention in John chapter 1, before we read verses 9 through 14, to the prologue, which is the first word in this gospel. I just want to draw your attention to the first five verses, which speak of Jesus as the Word of God. It's saying that He is revealing God. He's he's the light of God to reveal and then if you look at the end, verses 16 through 18, he says, it says that Jesus reveals God. So in the beginning it says he reveals God, and in the end it says he, be- he reveals God. And, and right after the beginning, right before the end, there's a reference to John the Baptist, who is the witness to Jesus. He is the one who reveals the one who reveals God. And then our, and then our verses are right in the middle. I think this shape is on purpose. And it's pointing us to this this mission of Jesus in verses 9 through 14. And here is what it is. The true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The Son of God was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through Him. Yet, the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You may be seated. Beloved, what we just read is the Word of Christ. And what I mean by that is, We should revere and listen closely in the time that we have together because it's as if Jesus himself has stood before us and has spoken. Your creator has spoken. And these are the words we're going to give attention to this morning. Do you have an answer for the question, why does this world exist? I would guess if you are in this kind of season showing up to a church, then you have some answer to the question, why Jesus? I mean the name of the human, the God-man. Not the the fact that, that God is three in one, Father, Son existed eternally, but why Jesus? Why was He born and given a name? Why did He come? G.K. Chesterton said a hundred years ago, if there is no God, then there is no purpose. If there is no God... And you're thinking, why does this world exist? 
then, then let me tell you, if there is no God, there is no reason to care about anything. About your life, it's going nowhere. Uh, uh, about how you treat people, if there was no God, there would be no such thing as good. I mean, how, how could you even, how could you even decide something is good or something is wrong if there is no one who defines that, no one who is representative of all that is good, all that gives you life? You could never know it. There is no such thing as good in this world. There's only random. There's only your thoughts. And we could all disagree. Now, that is an argument for the existence of God because we mostly agree on what's good. You have a sense of what is good. And that is because this world is made with purpose by a God. But there would be no good in this world apart from God. There, if there is no God, there is no purpose to anything. But because there is a God, there is purpose. And what we're considering this morning and perhaps next week is in the greatest act of God who always has reasons, who always has purpose. If we look at the greatest act of God, the culmination of all that He has said about Himself in the Gospels, we should expect for that greatest act of the Son of God leaving heaven and becoming man. For that to be filled with purpose. Why Jesus? Is another, another way to ask the question, why did God become human? Why did God, who is spirit, take on a body? And... So what I want to consider as we close out this series is this. God did through Jesus what he could not do. That's a statement. Without a body. That's just logical. He took on a body for a purpose. And he accomplished something that he could not have done apart from doing this. So here's the sermon. In a sentence, the Son of God came into His world as a man on a mission. The Son of God came into His world as a man on a mission. And we're considering, what is, it, what is the mission? Why did He do this? And I believe that John gives us an answer. And I hope this will fill out your answer. John, in his first word, in the first passage, and in his last word, in the last chapter, he gives an answer about this point. Why did he come? The first word is in John 1, and I'm, I'm narrowing it down to verses 9 through 14, and here is the purpose. It's that middle section. The Father sent the Son with a mission, and that is, make me children. 
You see that in verses 12 and 13? Make me children. I believe the shape of the first word points to this middle section. And the point of it is, the Father sent the Son for this purpose. Make me children. When I think about uh, being children of God, I always think about this story that is humorous to me. I was serving one day in the... In the um, clothes closet and food pantry and one day you know I was helping a couple out to the car to unload their groceries that they had picked up that day and I observed this tiff uh, between the two and uh, I noticed that the woman uh, was was uh, giving a lot of instruction to the man and at some point um, he turned to her and he said uh, you're pretty difficult. And she looked at him and said, I'm a child of God. And she said it like that. I just don't always remember it. She said, I'm a child of God. That's what I say to you when you try to tell me anything negative. Now, um, I don't know if she was or not a child uh, of God. Maybe she is. Um, but I did hear something that I would want to distinguish from what we're talking about when the Father says, make me children. This is why I sent the Son into the earth. It's not to give you an excuse for acting however you want to act and for doing whatever you want to do. And if anyone challenges you on that, you just say, I'm a child of God because of Jesus. That is not what he's getting at. In fact, in verses 9 and 10, God tells us no one is born a child of God. You see that? No one is born a child of God. Even though Jesus made the world, the world did not know Him. So it's not enough just just to be made by God. That's not the kind of children that the Lord is talking about in verses 12 and 13. Yes, you can say in a sense you've been made by Him, so He must be in some sense your father, but that's not what Jesus came to do. Not in that sense. The world does not know God. In fact, that is how John defines the world. The world is all of those people in the world who do not know God, who do not know Him personally, who who have not been saved by Him to know Him in this close and covenant committed relationship. That's the world. And they don't know God. So sometimes as a pastor, I'll hear people talk about, if I ask them, how did you come to faith? How did you become a Christian? And they'll say things like, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. I understand sometimes what you're talking about. I don't remember a day when I wasn't a Christian. Well, say that. Because John 1 says, no, you were not born knowing God. You did not know God. And, and listen, the Bible says more. We, didn't, we, don't, we aren't born knowing God for this reason. It's because we disowned Him. He made us. And Genesis chapter 3 makes this point that our first parents, Adam and Eve, made a decision to sin against God and to do what He told us not to do. And when they did that, they said, I don't want you to be my God. I want to decide what is good. I want to decide what is evil. I will be God. We were born with this condition of disowning God, so we don't know Him. Beloved, make no mistake. Every single person who was made 
has a judge. Yes, the maker is your judge by birth because he made you. He owns rights over you. He is your judge. You will answer to him. But it takes a mission to make you a child. In fact, the very mission of Jesus, according to the very first words of John, is to address this very problem Even though he didn't have an obligation to do this, he willingly came for this reason. The whole world is separated from me. The whole world doesn't know me. Even though I made them, how can they know anything about life? How can they have any kind of purpose or know what they should be doing if they don't even know who made them? So you could, I don't know if if Clayton's barbecue is open after uh, the service, but you could... You could go in there and you could, I guess, look at the menu and say, you know what, I'll take the words. Just give me one of everything. And and, and while you're at it, give me the employee discount. Now, the employee who's taking your order can look at you in that moment and probably not recognize that they've ever seen you on shift, right, on the clock. And and so they may say, well, I, I work here and I don't, recognize you to be an employee so how can i give you the employee discount and if you said to them well i'm here ain't i they would then say you have to that's not enough for you just to be here you have to actually be part of the team friends learn this from the beginning of the gospel physical birth into god's world does not bring anyone into his family his family is a spiritual family so jesus in a couple of chapters will say Whatever is born of flesh, like just being born physically, that's flesh. You have to be born of spirit to be spirit. You must be born a second time. No one is born a child of God, even though we are made by Him and even if... His next point is even if you were saved by Him. Now, listen to me. Verse 11. The people of Israel were saved by him. This is what I mean. For them. For their kind of salvation. It says in verse 11, he came to his own. And even his own, the people of Israel, who had the promises, who who were, were expecting him, who were looking for the king to come, should have known he would come. Even they did not receive him. Even they did not believe in him. His own people is this different group from the world. This is the people that God saved. Israel saved from Egypt. They, and we see this throughout the Gospels, the Jews largely reject Him, largely refuse to receive that He is God's Son. And so they were saved in some sense, in an Old Testament sense. But not in a New Testament sense. Not in the sense of what the Son came to do. They were not saved in that way. And so the mission then is to give a better salvation than Israel had already experienced in the Old Testament. That's what He's come to do. So that at the end of the Old Testament, what what is it that God keeps on saying? I've got to do a new thing. Don't just think about the old thing I did when I made you my son. I'm going to make you a different kind of son, my people. And he specifically says, what I'm going to do is make a people who all know me. Not this mixed group of people, Israel, 
who some of them know the Lord and some of them do not. When my son comes, when I come, all my people will know me. So I want you to see a little bit more of this first word in John 1, verses 1 through 18. Look at 1, 1. This whole first section of the Gospel of John is a word about witness. It is a word about revealing God. And so that's why 1-1 starts with, in the beginning. Because the whole book of the Bible started with, in the beginning. It's taking us back to the very first time God spoke publicly. And this point is being made that That creation did not give us God in the way that Jesus will give us God. Creation didn't give us a father. And then the language goes on in in John chapter 1 and he talks about basically how God saved Israel out of Egypt and made them his people. Look at chapter 1 verse 17. The law was given through Moses. That's what happened right after God saved them out of Egypt is the Ten Commandments were given. Moses revealed God. God spoke a second time publicly. And He revealed Himself. And you remember what happened after that. God pulled Moses aside. Only Moses aside. And, and the rest of the people didn't get to hear what Moses got to hear on top of the mountain. And, and remember what He said. I'm going to reveal my glory to you. I'm going to reveal my name. I am gracious. So... Our passage then says that Moses gave the law and also grace came to Moses in some sense. But verse 14, look back there. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What you need to hear is if you want to see God, Moses couldn't even do it. I will hide you in the cleft. You want to see my glory? I will tell you my name. My name is Gracious. But you can't see my face and live. And then verse 14 says, if you've seen Jesus like we have, John says, you've seen glory. He has made God known in a way that creation didn't, in a way that Moses didn't. Jesus makes God known better. He is God in the flesh. That's why it says tabernacled or dwelt among us. He is the God who has come to the world. But also, verse 18, look there. No one has ever seen God. A reference again in comparison to Moses. Jesus has seen Him because He is the only God. He is at the Father's side. And He has made Him known. Jesus has come to perfectly explain who God is to the world. He's the only one who can tell you. Moses can't tell you. Moses didn't see His face. Jesus has seen His face from eternity past. And now, right now, beloved, is seeing Him now, looking at Him now, and He has made God known in a way that no one else could. Only the Son can make the Father known. Only the Son can make children.
God became man because you would never know him otherwise. God became man to explain God to man and bring man to God. Beloved, the good news is he doesn't just bring us as allies of God, as friends of God, but the emphasis is on children. No one is born a child of God, but some orphans become children. So, verses 10 and 11 say that that Jesus was rejected by the world and rejected by his own people, but he was received, not rejected, received by those who were born. By those who were born. Look in verse 12 again. To all who did receive him, what I mean is who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How do you become a child? You can ask any child that. Well, first you have to be born. We're going to be children of God. How do we become children of God? We have to be born. You have to be born by choice. The word is will. Born by will. By a decision. And John makes clear whose decision it is. Not by blood. Israel, just because you're born a Jew, doesn't make you a, a child. Not born by your will. Not the the will of the flesh. The flesh and all of its sin will never will this. Choose God as Father. Decide for the Lord. Not of the will of any man, but, but God has to do it. So if we were in Ephesians and Paul would describe the state of all of humanity in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Basically said, you would not go to him. You would not come to him. You could not come to him because you were really that dead. Spiritually, and dead people can't do it. Our will, our choice is is bound up by sin, tied to it, and will only do what is consistent with it. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of God sending a son, is that God wills to make children. He takes people and he saves them how does it all work i don't really understand it totally but jesus went on in john chapter 3 when he said you must be born again he says to nicodemus the wind blows where it wishes you hear it sound you don't know where it comes from or where it goes you can't predict it you can't cause it but you feel it you hear it you can see its effects We saw its effects a couple nights ago when we woke up and saw what the wind did. You can see its effects. And Jesus says that is the way it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so uh, Jesus, I think, is a good teacher. I think he's a good teacher. Um, and, And when the teacher says, well, let me tell you what it's like to go to heaven, you have to be born. So some of you have heard me give this analogy. Um, He's good at picking the analogy that really explains what this is like. It's like being born. 
I don't know if there, anyone would stand up and testify today about the day of their birth. And what I mean is their will in the day of their birth. No takers, I see. Let me just explain my own. I cannot tell you that I was in the womb and I said, you know what, I wonder what's out there. It's kind of dark and comfy, but I'm just curious what's out there. Let me claw my way out and just see if there's more to be seen in this world. You have to be born. And that's not the way it works. Even if we have conversations with people, we'll say to someone who's really uncomfortable and pregnant, well, they'll, be, they'll come when they're good and ready. No, they won't. Forces outside of that baby will work on the baby and cause the baby, push the baby out. That's the way birth works. Jesus said you have to be born again spiritually. And that's the way it works. Forces outside of you more powerful than you force you out into life. So that Ephesians 2 goes on to say, but God made us alive. And he's a good creator. And when he makes something alive, it lives. And so when the baby comes out, what can you do? You can start taking vital signs, can't you? You can see the baby is is breathing, you can hear the baby is crying, you can hear the baby is hungry, the baby is alive. And however, this all works. The Spirit comes and makes people alive whenever they hear about Jesus. They would not have chosen Him. They could not have chosen them. Him. They were dead spiritually, but then He makes them alive. The Spirit comes, the wind blows, and you can see its effects. They live. They choose Him. They love him. They didn't love him. They want him. They did not want him. But they're alive now. And when God makes alive, then everything lines up and we believe. We want him. We become children by birth. Isn't it amazing that God takes people who would never choose him and he chooses them and makes them able to do what they could never do. So the Son of God took a body. And He did what Adam did not do, what Moses could not do. You see, something has to happen for the world that does not know God. John 3, perhaps the best known passage in John. John 3, verse 16. You know it. You don't have to turn there. But let me, let me read a couple verses before to show you the how, what has to happen for the world who doesn't know the Lord. You cannot just make... They're not just helpless orphans. They're rebels, sinners who've offended God who have made choices against Him. And so, right after Jesus explains to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Look in verse 9. How can these things be? How can that happen? And then He describes, look in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must you must be born again. And how is... how? How are you going to be born again if you must be born again? Well, what must happen is the Son must be lifted up like 
Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Sounds just like verse 16. 4, verse 16, is actually an explanation of verse 15. For God so and so means in this way. The same meaning as verse 14. So means in this way. God loved the world that he gave his only son to be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How? Like the serpent was raised in the wilderness. Like, don't you remember in Numbers chapter 21? When all those fiery serpents were biting the people of Israel and just by one bite of the the serpent, they just dropped down dead. And and God said, here, take this staff, this this bronze serpent that looks like the ones who kill you, but but lift that one up. And and I tell you, just trust me, if when you are bitten by one of those snakes, if what you do then is look up at the one that looks like those snakes, but the one that I gave, then I will save you. You will live. I've provided this snake. And the son came to be like that. So that when he's hanging on a cross and he looks guilty, he's around the guilty and he's dying. He looks guilty. He looks like a sinner. But he's not a sinner. He's lifted up so that if anyone looks at him, I deserve your punishment. That's what I deserve. I deserve to die. But if you will look up at him and believe in him, he took your pain. He took your punishment. And he will give you life. The one who looks like sin, the one who looks like he's guilty before God and cursed before God, he is our salvation. God lifted him up in that way so that your sins can be forgiven and then you can come and be a child. You can come into his home because your debt has been paid. Look at what he did with the body. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus, You don't, what I mean is you don't live for him. Look at verse 36, chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Good news for those who believe. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. If you won't obey him, if if he's not your life, if he's not your king, you won't ever see life. But the wrath of God remains on you. It was there. We inherited that wrath. We earned that wrath. Jesus took wrath. Anger of God for sin. And if you will not obey the Son, you will have to pay Him. So turn to the Lord Jesus and believe. Look up at Him. He's the one God provided and He will save you. I do want to look at the end of the book of John. Go with me to John 20 to see what happens after Jesus died. John chapter 20. And it looks like we are going to end here. And when I say end here, I say it like a preacher. Um, Some of you know what I mean. Chapter 20, verse 17. After Jesus dies on a cross and he's raised from the dead. We saw this, it was last week. Jesus appears. He's been raised from the dead because he is not guilty. 
And he cannot stay dead because only sinners deserve death. Verse 17, Mary clings to Jesus and he says, don't cling to me. I have not ascended to the Father yet, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father. My Father. You see what else he says? And your Father. He came with a body so that body could be lifted up and hung on a tree so that he could make orphans into children. And once he has been killed and raised, he says, the work is done. My mission is done. I have done what it takes to make you a child. Now you have a father. I want this point to really set in, and this is why we're not going on. I can tell, I can tell you, I, I don't mean to make light of anyone else's experience. I, I really don't. But I can tell you that I have a sense of how awful it is to grow up without a father. I didn't know. I had nothing until I was 27. I know what kind of effect that that can have on a child. You hear all kinds of stories about the effect that a father in the home makes. Some people have a father in the home and and he's not much better than not being in the home. But I I did have this moment where I got to reconcile with my father. And from age 27 till 31 when he died, I got to walk through this wonderful restoration and got a glimpse, a taste of what so many take for granted. And, and I would say, my wife reminded me of this this week, that, that one moment in particular rep, is, is kind of representative of all that my heart that longed for a father got to actually experience in this one moment. I was graduating from seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. My father flew in from Decatur, Texas. Of course, my mom was there. She, wouldn't miss, she never missed anything. My father missed everything. And he didn't miss that. And our president uh, gave a stern warning, no applause, no clapping, no celebration until the very end. This will take forever if everyone just starts clapping. And so I uh, walked across the, the stage and, and got my degree. And I looked back. And he was in the back of the room because he couldn't clap. And his, his, his arm was in the air. As if to say, I'm so proud of you, son. And I knew it. I knew he was proud of me. Just one moment that in some ways made up for a lifetime of, of missing moments. God says that every single person was not born a child, was born an orphan. You may have had a physical earthly father, You did not have this kind of father when you were born. And what an orphan wants more than anything, even if he doesn't always understand it, is a father. Beloved, this is the mission of Jesus. To buy you with his blood and to make you what only he was, a child. 
So I don't know what your relationship with your father was like. I'm guessing it was mixed. I'm guessing you have stories like mine where there are these flashing moments and the the very best of them, you should know that is a shadow of how good a father we have as Christians in God. The very best. And every father that is a human is a sinner. I have had opportunity this week to remind my children there is a better father. I am a failure. In all my best, I might be a shadow of God. But but every father sins. Every father on some level abuses his authority or abdicates his authority. He's not the best picture. Children, your father, I hope you've got a... You, you, you're blessed and you know your father and they're, they're showing you little signs of who God is and can give you pictures of who God is. But, but there is one who's far better and you can know him. Because there are things in earthly fathers that are awful and they don't reflect God at all. Even the best fathers. So let me tell you what the Bible says about the blessing of having a father who is God. It is exactly what a child needs. And it is what an orphan will appreciate. He is the father who cares for the anxious. There are lots of things to worry about and be afraid of in this world. And Jesus says, your father in heaven knows what you need and he will provide it for you. He knows your needs and he cares for you. The father is one who provides. Romans 8 says, if he did not spare his own son, how will he not with him give you all good things? He is not the kind of father who doesn't care when you're worried, who's kind of annoyed when you're, when you're fearful of something. He is the kind of father who always cares about what makes you anxious. And he is the kind of father who will provide you every single thing that you need. He is elsewhere described as the father of all mercies who comforts us in all our affliction. All mercies, every affliction, all of our affliction, He comforts us. So if you're afflicted by your own sin, He is a Father of all mercies. He poured out all of His anger on His Son. He doesn't have any more for you. He has mercy for you. He is mercy to you. In your sin, go to your Father. He is the Father of all mercies. He is the Father who is pictured by Jesus in Luke chapter 15 when the wayward son is done being wayward and he realizes, all I have, I've just lost everything, I've squandered everything, I've made him such a mess of my life. Maybe my Father will make me his servant. He doesn't make him his servant. He runs to the Son. The Son's got this apology all worked out. I know I've got to confess this to him. I'm going to say all this stuff to him. The Father says, no, I don't need to hear any of that. I'm running to you and I will receive you. You're not a servant. You're a son. Here's my ring. He is the father of all mercies. He's also 
because uh, children need justice. There are things that happen in our homes that are just not right. And, and, and earthly fathers may get, be good and they may get it right. Sometimes they may punish to the right degree. They may punish the right person, but they won't be able to make everything right. A child comes home and they're so discouraged and hurt by what has happened to them. And the father can comfort, but, but the earthly father cannot give justice. Well, our father is a God of justice. He's going to make every wrong right, child of God. And, of course, He is the Father of grace who listens to what you need and He has every resource available. And He will only withhold something from you if it would harm you. He knows best. And, of course, He's also called in 1 Peter chapter 1 the Father who guards you, who has an inheritance in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and He's keeping it there for you, and He's going to keep you for it. He is guarding you by faith and giving you the trust that will keep you in the home. So the woman said, I'm a child of God, as if that defended everything. And there is a sense in which she's absolutely right. This is your defense. For every danger, you have a father because of the son. So, perhaps my favorite book is dedicated in this way to his, the author's children. He just says, remember who you are. It's my favorite book because it's a book about a son who needed a father. And without this father guiding him, he was on his own and he made this terrible mistake. And in this story, he becomes this monstrous person who scares everyone, who's very powerful and could be really wicked. And the way that he is saved is by remembering who he is. I am Kalmar, son of Esben, high king of Anira. And he's guarded from every danger. When he says that to himself, beloved, remember who you are. If you are in Christ, you're a child of the high king of heaven. Father in heaven, we pray that you would take this word and make it fruitful. Would you cause it to to make us believe and in believing have life and, and guard us from every danger. Oh God, first cause us to feel and not take for granted that we deserve you as Father. We were orphans. You came. You sent your Son. He came. And He came to get us. And now no one can take us from you. And so we thank you for the mission of your Son who has made us children. We pray all this with gratitude to Him. Amen.